0: everybody and welcome to this presentation on the addictive process I'm your host Dr Donnelly Snipes in this video we're going to define addiction using the new 2019 definition from the American Society of Addiction Medicine we'll briefly review changes in the brain and neurotransmitters caused by addictive behaviors we'll learn how triggers become conditioned to produce cravings and review the different stages of addiction and recovery so let's start out with that definition I was thrilled to see that in 2019 the American Society of Addiction Medicine did broaden their definition of addiction according to this definition addiction is a chronic medical disease which is influenced in its development by genetic neurological psychosocial and environmental factors people with addiction use substances or engage in behaviors that become compulsive and often continue despite harmful consequences okay so let's break this down and I know I'm really excited a chronic medical disease a long for a long time we've referred to addiction as a disease and addiction the American Society of addiction medicine is recognizing that it is not just a thought process it is not just a set of behaviors it involves changes in the neurochemistry of the brain changes in the neurochemistry of or in the chemistry of the gut microbiome changes in the way the body functions for a lot of people it goes on to recognize that there is no one cause for addiction there are a lot of things that contribute to the development of addiction including a genetic predisposition Neurological uh, responsivity to drugs, for example, uh, may also impact it, as well as neurological dysfunction that may lead to self medication with addictive behaviors. Additionally, a person's psychological makeup, as well as any coexisting mental health issues, uh, may contribute to the development of addictive behaviors and their social network as well as their environment accessibility to drugs and whether their social network is supportive of drug use or use of addictive behaviors may also influence the development of addictive addictive behaviors or addictions in people the biggest part that i really like the biggest change that i really like is that in 2019 the asam definition changed to read people with addiction use substances or engage in behaviors that become compulsive and often continue despite harmful consequences so it is now embracing the notion that addictions are not just chemical or substance related it gives validation to those concepts that we have been talking about for a long time in addiction circles such as process addictions or behavioral addictions which for the most part are not yet recognized in the dsm-5 tr or the diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders so again i think this is a really wonderful first step towards identifying the fact that there are a lot of things that can become problematic for people and we need to not um, minimize just because it's not a an illicit substance so let's talk about some of these changes in the brain pro-survival behaviors like eating or exercising triggers the limbic system the limbic system rewards us by releasing dopamine endorphins norepinephrine and other pleasure neurochemicals when we do something that is pro-survival or when we do something that produces pleasure we're going to do it again the limbic system when it releases dopamine and endorphins gives us that rush gives us that pleasure hit if you will most chemical and behavioral addictions cause the brain to release two to ten times the quote normal amount of dopamine causing the person to experience a rush or a high I use normal in quotes because what is normal for one person may be different than for another person but it increases the steady state if you will two to ten times above that person's baseline which produces those pleasurable feelings prolonged engagement in addictive behaviors can lead the brain to stop producing as much dopamine as it naturally does our brain is really cool because it's our whole body is self-regulating and it recognizes how much dopamine and how much activity should be happening in the dopaminergic system at any one time based on a person's basic basically their biological set point now I'm grossly oversimplifying these things but bear with me so a person has a baseline biological set point for dopaminergic or dopamine activity when the brain recognizes that hey we're being overstimulated, it actually acts to reduce that stimulation by shutting down or pruning back the Re- dopamine receptors is what they are hypothesizing happens right now and that reduces the amount of dopamine that actually gets through it the same amount may be released into the synaptic space but less actually makes it through into the next neuron and and so on so that is really important to recognize when the brain recognizes that hey there's too much dopamine it may shut down those receptors it may not produce as much Dopamine or it may not release as much Dopamine we know there that there is a reduction in dopam- dopaminergic receptor activity therefore when the person doesn't use the brain registers that as not getting enough Dopamine so instead of having a tsunami of dopamine coming through there's not much coming through and the brain's like well we we're not getting enough through these few portals that we've left open the prefrontal cortex is involved in planning and executing goal-directed behaviors the prefrontal cortex is interesting because this is where we do our executive functioning our higher order thinking our decision making our impulse control but it is the last part of the brain to actually finally develop and mature imaging studies in brains of people with addiction show disruption in multiple regions of the prefrontal cortex interestingly people who begin use of some sort of addictive behavior or substance prior to their mid-20s tend to show more damage in those areas because until the prefrontal cortex is thoroughly mature if you will it is much more susceptible to insults from surges of excitatory neurochemicals including dopamine these changes in the prefrontal cortex may underlie the inflexible behavior when faced with conditioned cues if this area in the prefrontal cortex is not able to take in this information and go okay what are my options it just takes in the information and goes when I see this I do this this is how it has to happen then that may be a problem it may underlie the disruption in inhibitory control that results in impulsivity when our prefrontal cortex is activated it is engaging what we call the executive control network when the executive control network is activated it takes us off autopilot what they're saying here is that disruption in this prefrontal cortex may make it more difficult for the brain to turn off autopilot and engage thinking processes this also may underlie some of the impaired decision making and impaired internal awareness and error detection the person again is on autopilot so they're having more difficulty making accurate and appropriate decisions in this context at this time they're operating off of prior expectations other glutamatergic neurological changes may also be triggered by repeated use when people use and I'm using the term really broadly that includes um, porn addiction sex addiction gambling anything that causes that rush of dopamine and it happens with regularity it happens chronically can create uh, what they call a neurotoxic environment in the brain when dopamine levels go up when a person is stimulated the excitatory neurochemicals flood the brain now i want you to think of the excitatory neurochemicals as hot neurochemicals and our calming neurochemicals as cool neurochemicals what we want is something that's akin to a warm bath we don't want to be burning and we don't want to be freezing we want something that's somewhere in the middle but when somebody repeatedly engages in addictive behavior or uses that keeps the hot chemicals the excitatory chemicals the levels of those really high in the brain which creates a what they call a neurotoxic environment it creates an environment that actually kills brain cells in in the very short uh explanation so it's important to recognize that addiction is not just dopamine when dopamine levels are altered it alters every other neurochemical in there and there are changes in multiple brain systems including the glutamatergic or the stress response system so we've talked about the fact that addiction can be chemical or behavioral we've talked about some of the changes in the brain that occur as a result of repeated use and repeated insults of the brain uh, due to use and excessively high levels of the excitatory neurochemicals but what causes these neurochemicals to go up and what are triggers and cravings because we hear about that a lot in addiction so where do they come in well we gotta back up a little bit classical conditioning is one form of association that is centered on involuntary physiological reactions like when you think about lemons you may start to salivate when you smell brownies or Cinnabons those are mine you may start to salivate when it's hot outside you may alter your respiration rate or when you see something that scares you you may start breathing more quickly your heart rate may increase when those things happen there are neurochemical releases when we when there's a stimulus when there's something that happens that triggers a feeling between noticing that stimulus and having that feeling your brain has released a cocktail of neurochemicals that either say fight or flee or chill the heck out basically Uh, and it's important to recognize that that is an involuntary process that can be uh, sort of hijacked if you will by addictive behaviors when you start seeing things that remind you of cocaine for example if that is your drug of choice then just seeing something that reminds you of it may also trigger that neurochemical release so now I've used the word trigger operant conditioning is focused on voluntary behavior when you feel X you do Y for a reward so when you feel these feelings when you feel anxiety when you feel a craving uh, you may engage in particular behaviors so internal states can also be a trigger that prompts cravings it's important to recognize that because of those brain changes that happen due to chronic use of an addictive behavior when people are not using then their neurochemical balance is going to be out of whack because the brain has um, determined it's it's balanced itself around the state where the person is using so when the person's not using the system's all out of whack again so it's it's tuned for use and when they're not using it is it is out of balance engaging in a behavior that produces dopamine and endorphin releases produces a reward so people are likely to do it again you do something that's pleasurable you want to do it again novelty also encourages you to want to do things over again or to want to try new things generalization occurs when a reminder like a stimulus or a trigger for a behavior occurs in different settings a very common example maybe somebody and most people don't start out using and being addicted to something they start out with recreational use okay they're doing something whatever it is and it produces pleasure it helps them feel relaxed they're like oh this is pretty cool so somebody may start out by when they're drinking maybe the only time they drink is at a poker game with friends they they just don't drink that much and then they start hanging out with those same friends and they may start drinking while watching football with friends so now poker playing poker has become associated not only with those friends but also with drinking so they can go to a poker game with other people and it may trigger that desire to also have a drink now football has become associated with drinking so they may when they're watching football by themselves when they go to a football game when they're watching with other people they may also want to drink at the same time because football and drinking have now become paired drinking at a barbecue with friends okay you think that's pretty benign too however drinking at a barbecue let's think about all of the other things that may be associated with it a lot of times when there's a barbecue we're sitting out on the deck and we're hanging out and people may be drinking and barbecuing so then it's possible that that stimulus is generalized so maybe you don't even need to be barbecuing but sitting out on the deck with friends or even sitting out on the deck by yourself triggers the desire to have a drink of alcohol because the stimulus the the alcohol and the deck have become associated with relaxation have become all of those have been paired grouped together so you can see how this can become uh really generalized we're we're not specific in our the way we form our schema so your schema is generally not going to be the only time I want to drink is when I am playing poker with these friends on Saturday night poker is going to become associated with drinking those friends are going to become associated with drinking and maybe even Saturday night is going to become associated with drinking and the same thing with football and barbecue games or or, (laughs) football and and barbecue with friends so you can see how very quickly lots of stuff can start triggering your brain to say hey a drink would be pretty good with this aren't we supposed to be drinking with this so let's talk about the conditioning process really quick and I have other videos on the YouTube channel that go more in depth about triggers and cravings but we're really focusing on a high level on the addictive process in this video so the conditioning process remember I said people don't generally start out with problematic use they start out recreationally so the positive aspects outweigh the negative aspects positive aspects of use physically it may help them feel relaxed affectively it may improve their mood cognitively depending on the substance it may help them think more clearly or on the other side it may help them just shut off the intrusive thoughts and the constant bombardment and racing mind relationships positively in the initial recreational use stage or even up to problem use where they're using a little bit more than they should a lot of the use is probably associated with being with friends and hanging out with friends and engaging in social activities our society is um has a lot of correlations or connections between socialization and particular behaviors that can become problematic so in this stage the person is either recreationally using it's not a problem yet or they they've started using heavily but they're not having a lot of problems yet okay so the positive out aspects still outweigh the negative ones what are the negative ones at this stage well they're way up here so we know that there's not going to be as many they may start you know if it's alcohol maybe they start gaining weight or having some upset stomach process Um, affectively the recovery period when they are um, sobering up can be problematic there may be some guilt after they use or if they uh, when they sober up after being hung over cognitively they may have difficulty focusing the next day the withdrawal is almost always the opposite of the intoxication so during that withdrawal period they may start having some negative uh, impacts which and I'm not advocating for it but that's kind of where that um, saying hair of the dog that you" comes from because when people are going through withdrawal if they use again then it's going to increase those neurochemical levels and it's going to reduce the withdrawal symptoms but guess what it's contributing toward more brain changes and heading down that road of persistent tolerance and addiction the next phase is disenchantment the person is continuing to use despite negative consequences so the negative aspects far outweigh the positive aspects at this point point. positive aspects still may be there enabling the person to relax or maybe it numbs emotional or physical pain in some way affectively it may help them either feel better for a moment while they're intoxicated or maybe just not feel anything at all And again this only lasts while they're using or while they're intoxicated cognitively whatever positive cognitive changes they had before may still be persisting and their relationships the positive aspects are probably starting to dwindle however as addiction progresses we do generally see people's social circles change so instead of going from having all of these wonderful friends that they love to spend time with and then being rejected by those friends because of what they're doing in their addiction they may just switch so they don't go from having a lot of friends to having no friends most of the time they go from having friends a lot of friends a few friends whatever's nor- normal for that person to having different friends and these different friends are often supportive of their addictive behaviors and engage in those same behaviors so they are likely to as we say in recovery cosine on their bullshit. negative aspects physically we start seeing the body deteriorate if you do um, fmris you can start seeing changes in the structure of the brain and changes in the areas that are highlighted in response to pleasure as well as in response to withdrawal affectively people tend to become more moody um, and then when they're not using they're experiencing the opposite affect so if they're using stimulants that promotes euphoria when they are detoxing or not using they are depressed if they are using sex or gambling that has a euphoric component to it when they're not able to engage in those behaviors even if they're not trying to abstain when they're not actively engaging in those behaviors they may feel less motivated more irritable more depressed cognitively as the chemical environment in the brain changes and becomes more neurotoxic the glutamate increases the dopamine increases the thoughts become more centered around the drug the person's cognition their ability to think clearly tends to decrease dramatically environmentally at this point the person may be in jeopardy of losing their housing or getting kicked out of the house or losing their job uh, so environmentally not only accounts for you know what you have in your environment but also housing and finances that are supportive of keeping a roof over your head and relationships as I mentioned relationships often change and relationships with the people that love them and care for them and worry about them may become very conflictual if not completely um distance during this phase because the addiction has become so rewarding and so ingrained in this person's um, neurochemical makeup that it is hard for them to make those changes their body has become dependent on that substance or activity so let's talk about the progressive phases of addiction as I said people don't just start out being highly addicted it is possible with certain drugs uh, sometimes we offhandedly call them one-hit wonders that the drug is so potent it may produce a euphoria that's so great that the person is very quickly addicted to that substance so there isn't a period like with crack cocaine there's very rarely a period of recreational use people usually when they start using it the the addiction begins very quickly pornography on the other hand usually is a slower onset so you've got four main phases introduction or beginning of use which sometimes some people call recreational use maintenance or early problematic use this is when the person is using they may be using heavily but it's not yet causing them significant problems in their life disenchantment is when they continue to use despite problems in their life and then disaster is obviously the um, place where their problems have become so great that they decide that they need to seek help stages of recovery withdrawal honeymoon the wall and readjustment and I want you to recognize that these are additive so withdrawal period takes one to two weeks and that is on the very conservative side some drugs have something called protracted withdrawal that may produce withdrawal symptoms a month six weeks uh, after the cessation of use but the initial withdrawal period that we generally talk about and this is often the detox period is one to two weeks it's not two days it's not three days it takes your body a minute to recover from the toxic environment honeymoon lasts about four weeks so we're by the end of the honeymoon period you're six weeks out from last use the wall lasts another 12 to 16 weeks so that's another four months and then readjustment is eight weeks or longer after that so this recovery process it's not 28 days it's not even 90 days the recovery process is the very minimum six months and for a lot of people we know that post-acute withdrawal symptoms can last 12 to 18 months and sometimes even up to two years depending on the substance or the behavior so it's really important to recognize what's going on and I'll talk more about some confounding factors as we go through so the withdrawal period as I said lasts one to two weeks during this period the person is going to experience extreme cravings the brain remember has become tuned to having those surges of dopamine and endorphins and those kinds of things so it's quit making those or balancing those on its own it's just waiting for you to do what you do in order to get that rush and when it doesn't happen the body's going uh somebody forget to do something low energy regardless of the substance of choice in most cases people experience low energy because the producing pleasure in the brain ultimately produces a lot of excitation of the entire body so when the person is not using when they're withdrawing they often are exhausted now they may may feel anxious too but there's often concurrent low energy there are changes in sleeping depending on the person and depending on the drug of choice some people may have difficulty sleeping at all other people may sleep for literally days on end unless they are awakened increased appetite is very common regardless of the substance of choice because in many times in addiction people have neglected their nutrition and their appetite starts to return as their circadian rhythms start to get reset and as their body starts saying oh hey I need some of those building blocks so I can repair myself so the body starts craving the nutrients it needs to repair itself for some people there's also an increase in pain if the drug of abuse was either an opioid or a um, anti-anxiety medication like volume uh, there may be an increase in pain because of a reduced pain threshold and that's a topic for a whole nother article or a whole nother video but it is important to recognize that this can be very real it's not necessarily drug seeking behavior it may be relief seeking behavior so we may need to have strategies um, whether it be non-pharmacological strategies like massage and heat and ice or non-addictive pharmacological strategies and that is between the person and the attending physician how to manage that pain during the withdrawal period affectively during this first two weeks people's moods tend to be all over the place depression anxiety irritability guilt grief sometimes occasional rages it's very common their impulse control Uh, centers of their prefrontal cortex have been inhibited and the brain is trying to rebalance itself so there may be surges and spurts if you will and again that's not the clinical explanation but it gives you an idea of what may be going on there are some connections that may be trying to rebuild but they're not quite strong enough so they short out if you want to think about it that way cognitively concentration and memory during the withdrawal period or in the crapper the prefrontal cortex is where most of this happens and is going to be more difficult for people to focus their circadian rhythms are out of whack they're feeling irritable they're feeling anxious irritability and anxiety increase the stress response increase those excitatory chemicals and make it more difficult to focus so there are some confounds that we've got to deal with interpersonally or relationally we often see people in this withdrawal period being very impatient it's hard I mean think about it when you're sick when you're in pain when you feel like crap do you have a lot of patience to deal with other people's drama most people would say no so okay we can expect that it's important that we have tools if you're working in a detox unit that we have tools to help people um, trigger their relaxation response and react appropriately when they're feeling impatient instead of reacting impulsively reacting with mindfulness or appropriate responses there's also a lot of abandonment fears that come up during this withdrawal period people start sobering up and they start looking around and going oh crap what the heck did I do many times they don't like themselves very much so they wonder how anybody else could love them or forgive them which triggers all those abandonment fears and because people are impatient because people are impulsive because people are not feeling well communication even if they've got good assertive communication skills communication tends to be less than assertive during this period people some people will become much more passive and they're just like whatever I don't care just leave me alone other people will become much more aggressive and then you have yet another group of people who alternate sometimes they're very passive but then you push them to a certain point and they will rage we want to recognize that this is going on and help them most effectively communicate their needs throughout this process the honeymoon period some call it the pink cloud it lasts about four weeks the person experiences increased energy enthusiasm and optimism treatment started they can see a light they're like I might be able to kick this I might be able to you know move forward during this period they are typically engaging in good health behaviors they're eating well they're setting their circadian rhythms and all of that will contribute to increases in energy enthusiasm and optimism when people get through this stage it they often feel cured and my experience over the past 20 some odd years has been that people don't really start hitting that pink cloud phase until towards the end of that four-week period which is about the time that they're discharging from residential or they feel like they've got a substantial amount of clean time under their belt once that's happened they start feeling like okay I got this not a problem and family members unfortunately have seen this happen too many times and may view it as the beginning of a relapse it's crucially important during this period to maintain open lines of communication between the individual and their family members so family members don't inadvertently um, create a self-fulfilling prophecy if family members think up here we go again we've been down this road then they may start treating the person as if they have already relapsed and then the person who may still be quite clean may feel unsupported may feel rejected may feel a lot of negative feelings and ultimately that additional stress may contribute to relapse now I said that the duration that it takes people to move through this varies depending on a lot of factors if the person has an unsupportive environment or they have co-occurring mental health issues that can make the process take longer because as they sober up they are still being exposed to really high levels of stress and those high levels of stress maintain the high levels of neurotoxicity in the brain which can make it take longer to recover this is why co-occurring treatment is so important we can't just say okay you know we're going to treat your alcoholism or we're going to treat your porn addiction and all that anxiety and PTSD that'll get better on its own or we'll deal with that later it doesn't work that way because those mental health issues those environmental issues those relationship issues that contribute to the person feeling stress are going to slow down the rate at which the brain and the body can recover the wall this is the highest risk of relapse it lasts about 12 to 16 weeks so by the time the person gets through this period it's been about five months maybe six months since their last use remember i said that post-acute withdrawal syndrome can last 18 months to two years we don't want to assume that hey if you get through six months you're gold no it is really important to recognize that some symptoms can continue however during this several month period is when the brain is doing a whole lot of rebalancing and rebuilding during this period is when the person is doing a whole lot of treatment and cognitive restructuring and building of supportive relationships and creating a foundation to support recovery and developing tools that they can use to continue to build their recovery during this period reconditioning is going on and some people like i said say this is the hardest part of the recovery process other people may argue with that but it depends on the person and we want to validate their experience in the moment during this period physically their brain and body are still recovering from the effects of the substances the neurotransmitters the neurons the receptors don't just suddenly poof recover as soon as the person stops using it takes a while to rebuild those affectively the person may still be experiencing what we call dysphoria or unpleasant moods. many times in people's addiction they've done a lot of stuff that they feel regretful for that they feel guilty for they may have a lot of anger they may have a lot of resentment Uh, they may feel exhausted and depressed so there may be a lot of issues that are contributing to their dysphoria additionally our moods are created if you will by the cocktail of neurochemicals that our brain releases and if the brain is still not functioning if the body's still not able to produce the um, cocktail in the right balance for somebody to feel happiness for somebody to feel um, curiosity then they may still feel what we call anhedonic they don't feel much of anything at all or they feel distressful thoughts or distressful feelings cognitively people during this period are still easily overwhelmed and often have poor concentration dopamine is one of our main neurochemicals that help us with motivation focus attention and concentration and we know that dopamine gets all out of whack in addiction helping people recognize this and develop strategies to cope with it and to take note to journal or keep logs to take note of gradual improvements in their concentration in their mood in their energy can be hugely helpful toward helping them see those gradual moves towards recovery during this period people are also engaging in environmental interventions if you will they may be having to fix their finances address their debts they may be looking for new housing whether it's because they lost their housing or their available housing was still contaminated with the substance And they may be job seeking they may have lost their job and need to find another job all of those things can be really stressful for people relationally there is still a lot of mistrust and fears from significant others and the person is having to deal with the guilt they're having to deal with processing with their significant others processing through that those people's anger and frustration and heartache they are hopefully making new friends in support groups and in recovery and also developing their self-esteem but all of these things take energy readjustment is the final phase and it's eight weeks or longer depending again on the substance of choice the intensity and chronicity of use and any concurrent stressors including trauma and mental illness The person in recovery and the family at this point may begin returning to a healthier lifestyle after extended abstinence so when the person really has not only do they have tools that they can talk about that they can tell you about but they can effectively use those tools to deal with life on life's terms once they have that new rhythm and they have really honed some of those new skills then the person in recovery and family members may begin working on marital emotional and psychological issues that will hopefully strengthen the family now when we say family it's important to recognize that family is are those people that the person defines as their family it may not be their blood relatives it's the people that are supportive of them as human beings and supportive of their recovery relapse issues for people in recovery well there can be a lot and again I have many videos on relapse prevention ultimately there are three big umbrella issues lack of self-care creating vulnerabilities we often talk about the mnemonic halt hungry angry lonely and tired if people are not getting adequate nutrition then the body can't make the hormones and neurotransmitters to support the recovery process and to support happiness if they are not getting adequate quality sleep their brain cannot clear out the adenosine from the day they're going to have more difficulty concentrating and they may experience more systemic inflammation which contributes to impaired mood and potentially craving of to triggers without a relapse prevention plan and that's the important clause without a relapse prevention plan in the I suggest during the wall period people start really developing a relapse prevention plan they start learning what are my physical triggers for use what physical sensations uh, may make me want to use what are my affective or emotional triggers for use what thoughts do I have that are triggers for use that stinking thinking that we talk about what things in my environment what sights smells sounds may trigger my desire for use and what relationships or relationship behaviors may trigger my desire to use and how do I deal with those things that relapse prevention plan is so crucial because you can't avoid all of your triggers you can't even avoid most of your triggers probably so having a relapse prevention plan in place will give you alternatives that you can choose from when faced with a trigger instead of relapse and finally a lack of self-awareness or mindfulness of triggers and vulnerabilities If you're creating vulnerabilities but you're aware of them, then you can respond. Ideally, you quit creating them. But sometimes you're gonna wake up in the morning and maybe you didn't sleep well through no fault of your own, and that's a trigger for you being tired. Well, if you're self aware of that, then you can do things to protect yourself so that doesn't end up causing an issue. If you're not self aware, then you're kind of walking blindly through a mind field the same thing with triggers when people are not mindful when they're operating on autopilot triggers may just suddenly quote sneak up on them and it's much harder to deal with um, unexpected triggers than it is to cope with triggers that are not so unexpected they don't create a surprise and trigger that stress response nearly as strongly addiction causes changes in the brain using produces feelings of escape or euphoria which often become associated with people places and things when exposed to those people places or things people may begin to have cravings when faced with unpleasant emotions or situations people also may have cravings recovery involves creating new associations and developing new ways to feel good and deal with stress and help the body recover